We are going to look at Galatians chapter 2. We have been going through this letter. This is one of um, Paul's most intense letters, the Apostle Paul. Um, He's writing to people who he knew personally. He had spent some time with them. He had actually led them to Christ, had um, taught them about Jesus, and they'd put their faith in Jesus. They'd become Christians. And then he had left, and some other teachers who had had come in behind him, teaching these people who were not Jewish that they needed to become Jewish if they wanted to be really good Christians. In in essence, teaching them that there were certain laws that Jews um, obeyed, particularly things that sort of marked you out culturally distinctively as a Jew, certain things that they ate, certain ways that they, uh, rituals that they went through to be ritually clean. And these Jewish teachers had come along after Paul and said, it's not enough to have faith in Jesus, you need to also obey these laws. You need to also obey the law that God has given. After all, God gave it. And God doesn't stutter. And God hasn't changed his mind. He says in the Bible, in 1 Samuel, if you don't know this, I am the, the Lord God. I do not, the, the sovereign one of Israel does not lie or change his mind. He's not a man that he should lie or change his mind. So after all, you know, he's given the law. We should be obeying it, right? Seems reasonable. Um, the problem was, Jesus had come and helped people to come to understand that the law, parts of the law, were pointing to something. They're all pointing to Jesus, of course, but the the clean laws were pointing to something very specifically, the idea that you need to be clean to be in God's sight and to be able to worship. And that had been provided for by Jesus. In other words, the clean laws could never make you clean like you needed to be. They could only point you to your need for cleansing. And when people went to the temple and did the sacrifices, what they were doing was trusting in the provision of God. The Jews in the Old Testament were never saved by their works. They were never saved by doing the sacrifices. They were saved by putting their hope in God's provision. With the coming of Jesus, that provision has a name. Right? And so this is what Paul proclaimed. This provision is all you need. Jesus is all you need. But these false teachers were teaching otherwise. Now, we're kind of getting into the the heart of, you know, some of the doctrinal section of this letter. We're going to pick up in chapter 2 at verse 15 and just read to the end of the chapter. And what we're really going to talk about tonight is, is, you know, summary. The first couple verses summarize what I've been talking about these past few weeks. And then we're going to talk about some of the ways that this teaching gets distorted, gets convoluted, um, gets misunderstood by Christians, and why it's so important to clarify the gospel um, for ourselves and for our friends. So let's uh, read this together. Sorry, I mean, you you follow along and I'll read it, because you all may have different translations and that would just be chaotic. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. You remember last week I said that word justified means basically to be declared beautiful in God's sight because you've done everything He requires, everything He wants. It's to be declared beautiful in God's sight because He's done everything, you've done everything He wants. And Paul is saying, you can have that. You can have that, but you can't have it by the law. You can only have it by faith in Christ. 
And then verse 17, he picks up with an objection, responding to an objection. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live in the body. Sorry, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, we sense even from this rhetoric that this is important stuff for us to get. And Lord, not only is it difficult sometimes to understand, but Lord, our hearts resist it. Our hearts resist the message of your gospel because we resist the idea that we are dependent upon you for everything. We want to contribute something so that we get some of the glory. Lord, set us free from that tonight. Help us to to understand and to embrace the beautiful gospel, the good news. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That word gospel literally means good news. And it's, it's important, maybe, you know, verse 15 and 16 is, is, you know, some commentators think this is his things that he actually said to Peter, or it's hard to know where he's transitioning into speaking to the Galatians and just recounting what he said to Peter. Um, and I don't, I don't think it matters that much. Here is basically a summary in verse 15 and verse 16 of what he's come to understand. Here's what he's basically saying. Um, we who are Jews by birth and not quote unquote Gentile sinners, and I think he's saying that with some scorn. He doesn't truly believe that only Gentiles are sinners. Um, he points that out in some of his other letters, but that's the way the Jews referred to the Gentiles. Okay, so he's kind of, you know, sort of playing along with them. But he says, we know that a man is not justified. In other words, not made beautiful by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too, he means Jewish Christians, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified, made beautiful in God's sight by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Just say a couple things about this, just so you can kind of catch up if you haven't been with us and be reminded if you have been with us. Remember I said last week, Martin Luther was asked one time, I think it was Justin that pointed this out, wasn't it? Actually, I say it so much, I thought I said it. But no, Justin said it last week. That, you know, Luther was asked one time, you know, why is it that you always preach the gospel? And he said, basically because you leak. You forget it every week. You forget, I need to say the same thing over and over and over again. And that's what the letter of Galatians does for us. Here's the first point, to be justified. And that's a Bible word. You'll see it very, a lot if you start reading the Bible, the New Testament. But what it means is to be, cla- to be declared beautiful in God's sight because you've done everything he wants. That's, pretty, that's a pretty cool thing to have. I, I mean, I think a lot of Christians don't think that they could ever have that. They don't think they could ever have God look at them and say, you've done everything I want. Well done. But of course, there was somebody that we know that heard those words said about him. And it was Jesus. Near the end of his life, a voice from heaven spoke audibly, saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And what Paul is teaching, what the Bible teaches, is that you 
can actually have that same verdict that was given to Jesus given to you. If you are a Christian, you are justified by faith. That means God declares that you are beautiful in his sight because you've done everything he requires, not because you've done it, but because you've connected by faith to the one who has done it and to the one that, Jesus, that God looked at and said, he's done it exactly what I wanted from the heart. Jesus is the one who said, it is my meat and drink to do the will of my father. Do you feel that way? I don't feel that way, but I get credit for feeling that way, which is pretty unbelievable. It's so unbelievable that people fight it. And so Paul says, you know, people resist it. And and basically, they try other ways to be made beautiful in God's sight. But he's very clear here. There is no other way to truly be made beautiful in God's sight. He clearly says at the end of verse 16, by observing the law, no one will be justified. By observing the law, no one will ever hear these words from Jesus. Well done. No matter how religious you are, no matter how long you've been going to church, no matter how well you know the Bible, unless your faith is in Jesus, you will never hear those words. Well done. But if you are a Christian, I don't care if you haven't read your Bible in weeks. If you have faith in Jesus, you can't not hear those words one day. Well done. Now, another way of getting at this is to say the gospel is news, not advice. I'll be brief on this because I've been trying to hammer this point home every week. News is news about something that's happened. Advice is when somebody comes up and tells you what to do. The gospel is good news about what God has done that changes everything. It's not advice about what you need to do. Now, the Bible has lots of advice about things you should do, but it's never called the gospel. The gospel is the news, the announcement, the proclamation that God has done something that changes everything. Jesus came and lived and died in the place of sinners who didn't deserve it and don't even really appreciate it all that much, or at least not how they should. But he did it. Advice is, here's what you need to do to get God to like you. That's not good news. Advice will never go by the name gospel or good news because it's not news. It's basically advice telling you you need to do this. And that doesn't really make anybody very happy except the poor self-deceived souls who think that all God has to do is tell them what to do and they'll do it. They're poor, they're miserable, and they're deceived. And I hope you're not one of them. Don't ever think that all you really need to know. One of my seminary professors used to say, the real problem in Christian ethics is not figuring out what to do. It's finding the courage to do it. Truly, you know all kinds of things that you should be doing. The problem is finding the courage to do it. The news about what Jesus did gives you the courage. Jesus just telling you what to do, even Jesus just telling you what to do is not enough because your heart's resisted. So it's news, not advice. See, a lot of Christians think that what happens when you become a Christian is you get forgiven, you get given a clean slate, and then you get a lot of advice about what you need to do to complete the journey. Okay, I've given you a fresh start. You really screwed up your life, God says. 
and then you've got a fresh start, and now here's all the things you need to do so that I'll really love you. That's what most people think Christianity is. And it's not that at all. Christianity is best understood this way. Let's say you had a book. God has a book in heaven, and he's written down everything you've ever thought, said, or did. When you become a Christian, a lot of people think that what happens is your book is wiped clean. Your slate is wiped clean. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is not just an opportunity for a fresh start. Christianity is the, 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 this news that Jesus also has a book in which is written everything he ever said and did and thought and felt. And when you become a Christian, the covers get switched. That's why you're justified, not just forgiven. You're declared beautiful in God's sight because you've done, you're given credit for doing everything he wants because Jesus did everything he wants. Third point about this, to add anything to Christ's work is to fail to trust in Christ's work. You can't mix in a little bit of your works to cover your bases. To do that means that you're not trusting in Christ's work. And thus, you've turned the gospel into advice. Oh, I should trust in Jesus and I should do this. That's not good news. Good news is, good news is if I tell you something that's happened that changes your reality. Um, it, it's the difference between a wage and a gift. If, Robert comes to, if I say to Robert, come over to my house tomorrow, um, what should I have him do? Paint the deck, and I'll give you a million dollars. Now, he's going to probably show up, yeah? because that's a lot of money. But if I say to him, Robert, I'm going to give you a million dollars, it's a completely different kind of arrangement. The first case, it may seem like this ultimate overpayment, but he still has to do something. It's a wage. It may be a really generous wage, but it's a wage. It's not a gift. In the second scenario, when I say, Robert, I'm going to give you a million dollars, the only one who has to do what they need to do is me. The promiser is the only one whose faithfulness matters. That's the way it is with the gospel. The only ones whose faithfulness matters in this scenario is Jesus's faithfulness and God's faithfulness to keep his promise. To add anything to that undoes the whole deal. Uh, one of my favorite stories about this is the guy David Dixon, who on his deathbed, he lived back in the 1600s. If you've ever heard of a document called the Westminster Shorter Catechism or the Westminster Confession of Faith, he was one of the guys that helped write that. Um, and on his deathbed, he was asked, how is it with your soul? And I love his answer. He said, I've taken my good deeds and my bad deeds, and I've thrown them together in a heap, and I fled from both of them to Jesus, and in him I have peace. Do you realize you can never have peace if your understanding of the gospel is Jesus plus me doing something? Because... Jesus plus you equals salvation? The problem with that is you're a constant variable. And if there's a variable on this side, you guys all remember algebra? Then what happens to the other side of the equal sign? It's variable. You can never have peace if you're in the equation. It's, it's vitally important to understand. Now, that's, that's a strong teaching. And, you know, I, I said, uh, I think it was last week, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pretty well-respected Christian 
pastor, he's passed on now. Uh, he said he thinks that 90% of Christians don't believe what I just said. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all if, you're, if you think that that sounds too easy. If you wonder, gosh, Kevin, if you tell people that, that their faithfulness doesn't matter, doesn't factor into what God thinks of them at all, what is the motivation for them to live holy lives? Why don't they just run out and just sin all the more so that grace may abound? You've recognized that kind of language? Paul gets that objection all the time. It's really fascinating. Um, you could go so far as to say, unless that objection is raised, you're probably not preaching the gospel of free grace. If it sounds too good to be true, if it doesn't make people a little uncomfortable, you probably are mixing in a little bit of works righteousness with your preaching of the gospel. Because when Paul lays it down, like he does here in Galatians, like he does in Romans chapter 5, he instantly anticipates people objecting that that's going to lead people to sin. If you tell people that, it's going to make them sin. It's going to keep them, where's their motivation for holiness? If it doesn't matter what they do, as far as what God thinks about them. And that's what he picks up here in verse 17. And he says, okay, if while I seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? In other words, is it Christ's fault or is it the gospel's fault? If after I've embraced this message of free grace, I continue to live as a sinner? What's he say? Absolutely not. God forbid, I think the old King James says. God forbid we believe that. Why? Well, he goes, listen. If I rebuild what I destroyed. Now, what did he destroy? He destroyed his whole basis for earning God's approval. He destroyed his whole basis. He used to be trusting in his obedience to the law to earn God's smile. He was counting on his ability to make God like him. He was counting on his ability to get that declaration that you're beautiful in my sight, Paul. I love what you do. Couldn't have done it better myself. Way to go. He's trusting in that. But there came a point in his life when he realized that wasn't going to work at all. He's rejected that. All of that kind of building, if you will, of his righteousness has been destroyed. It's been torn down. And yet he says, you may look at me and you will find that sometimes I'm building that back up again. Even though I understand this gospel, even though I teach this gospel and preach it, even though I get in the face of an apostle who doesn't believe it in the moment, I myself still am a sinner. And sometimes even I try to rebuild what I destroyed. But if I do that, does that prove that the gospel doesn't work? Does that prove that the gospel even promotes sin? Not at all. It just proves that I'm still a weak, sinful person who still leaks the gospel of grace. It doesn't prove that this gospel doesn't work it proves that there's a lot of work to be done, right? It, it proves that, that the work that God has to do in getting me to trust him is a whole lot more difficult than I probably thought it was and than you probably think it is. You have that experience? If you've been a Christian very long, if you talk to people that have been Christians for a long time, I hope they will tell you that in some ways they feel like they're a worse Christian now than they were when they first became a Christian. Because if you're growing at all, you're seeing God's holiness more now than you did when you first became a Christian, and you're seeing your sin more than when you first became a Christian. And while other people around you may say, well, certainly this person is growing, they're trusting God more, and I see evidence of that in their life in so many different ways, to that person, what they see more clearly than their own growth, usually, 
is God's holiness and their own sin. But that doesn't prove that the gospel isn't working. Doesn't the idea that we're beautiful in God's sight, not because of what we do, promote laziness? And Paul says, absolutely not. It just proves, again, why I needed grace in the first place. And while I still need grace, and why the idea that all you really need is grace to be wiped clean, and then you can take it from there, is ridiculous. Because if I have to take it from there, I'm going to build up my own righteousness again. The news that is the good news, the gospel, is incompatible with trusting in yourself. Let me say that again. The gospel, the good news, is incompatible with you trusting in yourself. That doesn't mean that Christians live that contradiction of trying to trust themselves and trying to orient their lives around this news about what Jesus has done. But the two don't go together. If the news that we proclaim is true, that Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners, and that everything has been done that you need to hear the well done from God, then that's incompatible with you sort of on the side trying to build your own righteousness. As a matter of fact, at the end of this little section, Paul goes so far as to say that that is offensive to God even. And that it's a way of saying Christ died for nothing. So it's strong. But listen, this is not easy. One of my favorite quotes, I, I know it's in small, small print there because I had to squeeze on. I've got a bigger one because I could never possibly read that nine-point font. This is one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther. Martin Luther, a lot of, a lot of people, th- scholars, church history people, would say Martin Luther just really got this stuff in a remarkable way. He came through such toil and turmoil to come to this understanding of the gospel of free grace that he just articulates it in really bold, refreshing ways. And yet, I I love this quote, because, well, read it if if you can. It says, It's exceedingly difficult to get into another habit of thinking in which we clearly separate faith and works of love. For even though we are now in faith, and we're not trusting in works, the heart is always ready to boast of itself before God and say, After all, I've preached so long and lived so well, and done so much, surely he will take this into account. We even want to haggle with God to make him regard our life, but it cannot be done. With men, you may boast, I've done the best I could toward everyone, and if anything is lacking, I will still try to make recompense. But when you come before God, leave all that boasting at home, and remember to appeal from justice to grace. But, Let anyone try this, and he will see how exceedingly hard and bitter a thing it is for a man or a woman who all their life have been mired in his work of righteousness to pull himself up out of it and with all his heart rise up through faith in the one mediator. I myself have been preaching and cultivating it through reading and writing for almost 20 years. And still I feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal with God so that I may contribute something. So that he will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. Ouch. Still I cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace. Yet I know that this is what I should and must do. I find that very helpful. 
Because you may, you may read the book of Galatians and be like, well, why don't we get this? And you can hear me say, well, Luther said he needed to preach it to people every week because they leak. And he said even to his people, I need to beat it into your heads. But here he's revealing to us he needs to beat it into his own head. The life of faith is a life of being oriented to what Jesus did in all of life, but it's difficult. And it's not difficult just because it's complicated. It's difficult because our heart resists it. We still want to have something that we get the credit for. We still want to haggle with God and say, After, you know, take, take my holiness and give me your grace as a reward, not as a, sorry, as a wage, not as a gift. We're much more comfortable being paid than we are receiving free gifts. I suspect that a lot of you are like that. Do you have trouble receiving gifts? I, it's my love language, so I love gifts. But, but there, there are a lot of people, they don't like gifts because a lot of people, maybe their gifts have been given to them by a parent and you know that there's always strings attached. I'm going to give you these gifts so that I can have your loyalty or your love or maybe you'll take my side in the divorce. A lot of people have trouble receiving gifts. They want to be able to pay for it because if you pay for it, you stay in control. If you receive a gift, you have no control. Anyway, I don't want to go too far on that. There's other things we've got to talk about tonight. And, and it's in the next verse. An oft misunderstood idea. What does it mean to die to the law? Paul says this, verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. What does that mean? Now, Christians have proposed lots of different things, and, and, and some of these have been very serious errors. I can tell you very clearly one thing it does not mean. It does not mean that the law of God has no relevance for Christians anymore. It does not mean that the law is not still to be a guide for how our love for God is to be manifest. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Being a Christian does not mean, and dying to the law, whatever it means, it does not mean that the law has no relevance for Christians. If that's true, then Paul contradicts himself all over the place. You don't have to read very far at all in the New Testament, in Paul or the other New Testament books, to find all kinds of appeals to people to keep the moral law. This is the kind of conduct that's befitting of people who are God's children. Okay? It does not mean that you're released from any kind of reference to the law as a guide for life. So what does it mean then? What does it mean? It means that we're to live in a new way. I mean, this language of dying, and in the next verse, the language of I've been crucified with Christ, the first point you should get from that is things have changed. There couldn't be more decisive language to say something big has happened. Death is a big deal. Your life is not the same when you die, right? And that's obvious. To say I've died to the law means my relationship with it has changed completely. What does that mean? What does that mean? And notice this. He says that before he died to the law, he was unable to live for God. Now, I know a lot of people that say they want to live for God that have no clue about what it means to die to the law. But Paul says the two are linked. See what he says there? Look, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. He's saying that unless you've died to the law, you can't live for God. Now, this is pretty fascinating because Paul was a guy who was pretty concerned about living for God. 
as you can read about in Philippians chapter 3, he was a guy who was doing all the right stuff. He was rising through the ranks of Jewish leadership in a very impressive way. He was very zealous. He was very committed. And yet, he looks back on that and says, I could not live for God until I died to the law, through the law. What does that mean? Why is that? Well, listen, until he was set free from the law condemning him and the law controlling him and enslaving him in his pursuit to get God's approval, he never could live for God. Let me me explain how this works. As long as you're completely dependent upon your, your good works for God's approval, then all of your good works are really attempts to get his approval. They're not for him, they're for you. You can be doing all kinds of religious things, but you're not doing them for God until the issue of how do you get beautiful in his sight is completely settled. Until that issue is settled so definitively that the law no longer controls you, the law no longer condemns you. See, while you're trying to obey the law, and Paul says this in one of his other letters, that somebody that breaks one point of the law is guilty of the whole, breaking the whole law. If you commit yourself to this way of living, that I'm going to get God's declaration of me being beautiful in his sight by what I do, once you start down that path, you have to do it perfectly. If you screw up at all, you're lost. And so you see that to go down that path pretty quickly turns into slavery and drudgery. It's a nightmare. And until something changes, you can't be free to actually live for God. Everything you're doing is for you to try to get in God's good graces. That's what he's saying. What happened? Paul says at some point he died to the law. Through the law, he died to the law. And actually in Romans chapter 7, he explains a little bit more what he gives us in shorthand here. He explains it. And here's what he basically says. I was pursuing God in a very zealous way. I was doing great. I was the top of my game. Everybody was impressed with me, and they should have been. I was impressive. But there came a point at which I realized all these commandments that I was doing so well, I was doing them externally well. But I got to that last commandment. Do you remember the last commandment? Do not covet. Because I got to that last one, and my world fell apart. Because I realized God has the power and the right and the authority, not just to command my behavior, but my very heart, my very feelings. I realized that God's law was concerned with internal issues, not just with sort of this gloss of righteousness that everybody could see. And I realized that I had no hope. Then I realized that the rest of the law was concerned with internal things too. And I died. He said, When the law came to life, when I understood the implications, sin sin sprang to life. And it it made me covet all the more. And then I died. It killed me. It devastated me. I I utterly despaired of being able to pursue that way of getting God's smile anymore. It was over. But 
It set me free. And he also uses this illustration in Romans 7. He says, imagine that the law is like your spouse. And as long as she's alive, you're married to her. But once she dies, you're not. The law is like that. Until the law dies, until you die to the law, until the law in its condemning power, saying you haven't done enough, you didn't do enough, you didn't really mean it, you weren't sincere, until the law dies and can no longer say that to you, you're always going to be enslaved to it. See, this is what Colossians 2, Paul says, that the law that stood opposed to us was nailed to the cross. And when that happened, all the powers and the principalities lost their power. The condemnation that stood over you is gone. The law no longer controls you. It no longer condemns you. Like Martin Luther was fond of saying one time, when Satan comes to you and say, you call yourself a Christian? Look at you. Look at the way you live. Look at the way you think. Look at the things you lust after. Martin Luther said, don't argue with Satan when he comes in and says that to you. Say to him, Satan, you don't know the half of it. I'm much worse than that. But go take it up with Jesus. He lived and died in my place. And what God thinks about me has nothing to do with how faithful I am. It has everything to do with what Jesus did. Go take it up with Jesus. He lived and died in my place, right? That, that's, that's freedom. That's freedom. When you look at your own cold heart and half-hearted obedience, and you can say... Jesus. Take it up with Jesus. Heart, don't get discouraged. Jesus lived and died in your place. What God thinks about you is not what you think about you. Isn't that good? It's good news. So this this dying to the law is talking about that. Through the law, doing its work, it killed him. But when it killed him, it set him free. It set him free. And I will tell you, until you quit trying to use your performance to please God, you will never be set free from having to perform for God. You can't work your way out of it. You have to be rescued out of it. But the gospel is a rescue. God didn't say, hey, here's some advice. Why don't you quit performing? No. He said, here's the news. Good news. I've done all the performing that needs to be done. And I'm giving you credit for it. Be free. Another uh, misunderstood idea is verse 20. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? And again, it's this language of decisive change. But this verse really messes up a lot of Christians. I, I was talking with some students before this meeting. and I said, how many of you have ever prayed for God to make you an empty vessel? Does anybody want to be? Raise your hands. How many of you pray? I know a lot of you have prayed that. Don't be shy. Right. More than half of you have prayed that. If you haven't prayed it, I'm sure you've probably sung it. Calvin thought that the only reason that we could sing in, in church was because it was an aspect of prayer. Augustine said, he who sings prays twice. So if you've sung it, you've prayed it, whether you realize it or not. Um, but, but what is that? Where does that come from? Most of that comes from a misunderstanding of Galatians 2.20. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? Does that mean that Paul now ceases to exist or that in some mystical way Christ has replaced him? Is that what it means to be a Christian? I mean, after all, he says, 
I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Most people stop there and they get really confused and they think that the Christian life is, is like Buddhism, where you're basically trying to just quit being an I, quit being a self, quit being a you. But that's not the goal of Christianity. Look at what he says in the very next sentence. He says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith. There's still an I. He's been crucified. I no longer live, but the life I live by faith. How do you understand that paradox? It's sort of a paradox, but it's, it's this. What, what Paul is saying is the life we are to live as Christians, the life we do live as Christians, is a life where everything is referenced to what Jesus did. He says, I live this life by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Faith is, in, in a way, is a reference point. It's, it's, it's a way of connecting everything to Jesus and this good news of what he's done. That there's still a life for you to live. It's a life of faith. It's not a life of you performing for God, doing little tricks, Christian tricks for him so that he'll love you and bless you and give you a girlfriend or a boyfriend. It's not that. The Christian life is a life lived with reference to what Jesus did in space and time history 2,000 years ago in a particular place on a particular mountainside where he died a real death and three days later was risen again and now sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes with prayers for all of his children. That's all reality. And your life should be lived in reference and thought and felt in reference to that reality and that truth. These are not just silly religious ideas. This is true. This is real. This is reality. The goal of the Christian life, the point of the Christian life, is living connected to that. It's not for you to disappear. That's Buddhism. It's not Christianity. You're a selfish I, and God is at work in you to complete the good work he began, and he will complete it. But you don't disappear. You are not to be an empty vessel. You're to live your life by faith. It's a very different thing. This this teaching is very popular, but it's very wrong. And it really messes you up. I'll tell you, if you've ever been in a community where this kind of teaching prevails, then some of the implications are people go around and they say, well, I'm not really going to forgive her until the Lord gives me forgiveness. <laughs> because we think that the, you know, the way you live the Christian is you just let go and let God. Let him just flow through you. Do you know the Bible never uses passive language for the Christian life? The Bible never The Bible only two places says, yield yourself to God. And in both those places, it's a very active thing that you're to do. The Bible never says, just sort of sit back and let God flow through you. That you just need to get out of the way and let God live through you. It doesn't say that. And Paul's not saying that here. He's saying something definitively changed. I've been crucified with Christ. I, Kevin Twitt, dominion or uh, slave to sin is no longer. Your identity is a slave to sin. Romans 6, again, expands on this. Your identity as a slave to sin, if you're a Christian, has been destroyed. But you still are a sinner. It's a great way that Paul puts this over in Colossians 3. And I actually put this verse in your outline. Um, 
It says, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Paul says, you've put off the old self and put on the new self. It's another way of saying the same thing. Either you've died with Christ or you've been crucified with Christ or you've put off the old self, put on the new self. But notice what he says. The new self is still being renewed. In other words, it's not just that Jesus comes in and replaces you, and now that you're a Christian, you're perfect, except sometimes you forget that you're perfect, and so you fall back into, you know, into unbelief, or you fall, you know, one, one writer that I've, that I've read about this talks about how Christians are like butterflies, but sometimes they forget and they act like worms again. Or, you know, Christians are saints who occasionally sin, but really the only sin they do is opening themselves up to satanic strongholds. They don't actually do anything to be blamed for except opening themselves up. That's baloney. You're still an I who fights with God. And you're called to live by faith. And that's hard work. You see, remember what Luther said about cultivating it? Cultivating it? Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher, says, If I find faith growing in my heart, I recognize it's an exotic plant that doesn't grow there naturally. But, there's, but it needs to be nurtured. It needs to be cultivated. Because you fight against it. Christ does not replace us. Christ transforms us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another as we gaze upon the Lord. We're not being replaced by Christ. For all eternity, you will be who you are. You will be without sin but you'll be you. You won't just be absorbed into the cosmic universal stuff. That's not Christianity. It may sound spiritual. It's not Christianity. You have to keep both parts of verse 20 together. <laughs> last, last point, verse 21. He throws the gauntlet down, doesn't he? He says, If righteousness could be attained through the law, Christ died for nothing. What that means is, if we resist this gospel... If we fail to embrace this gospel, that's big trouble. Because not only have we set ourselves on a path of which there is no hope, trying to get God's smile by what you're doing, there's no hope down that road. But not only that, it's deeply offensive to God. Because what you're saying is, Jesus died for nothing. Jesus didn't really need to die. I could take care of it. I could do it. Close with this illustration. It's an old story, but I think it's a, a good story. If, if, you were, if your house was on fire and all of your family and yourself got out and you're standing on the roadside looking at your house burning down and a guy comes up and says, let me show you how much I love you and they run into the burning house and they're killed, what would you say about that person? You'd say you're an idiot. <laughs> but if, if your house is on fire and you're trapped inside, and you can't possibly do anything to get yourself out, and somebody comes up and says, let me show you how much I love you, and they run in, they rescue you, and they die, what do you say? Greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his friends. See, I think we don't realize, we think unbelief is not a big deal. We think that trying to cover our bases and, you know, perform a little bit just to make sure God likes us more than he likes other people so that we can get the really good stuff. We, we, we think that way. When we do that, 
we actually are saying to Jesus, your cross doesn't matter. That's serious. But of course, do Christians trust God perfectly? Of course not. That would be making a Jesus out of your faith. But the question is, 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 there, is there a basic direction to your life? I'm not saying there's not slipping back, but is there a basic direction that my trust is really in him? Can you understand what David Dixon is talking about when he says, I've taken my good deeds and my bad deeds, and I fled from both of them to Christ? Do you know what it means to flee even from your good deeds, from the things that you think you do really well, from the things that you think you're better than other people at? Until you do, you will never have peace, and you will have very little understanding of the gospel. That's what Galatians is about. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this good news. Lord, we sure need it. We thank you that the good news is true, whether we believe it very faithfully or not. But we do long to believe it more, to believe it more purely, more fervently. We long for it to connect to all the fears and hopes and dreams that we have. We long to be truly free, to know what it means to really know that the, that the law can no longer condemn us because, Jesus, you took condemnation for us. Lord, we want that freedom. We want to taste that freedom. Help us to boldly trust in you, to really be able to say, I have faith in the Son of God who lived and died for me. Lord, help us to never be content to just know that you lived and died and not to know that you lived and died for me. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.